You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Y'all got a Bible? Y'all have an iPad or an iPhone? Y'all can click on it. If you do, um, and uh, as Timothy mentioned, we're moving our way through Matthew. Matthew is a thematic writer, not so much about chronology, more about the storyline and the narrative. And we are looking all this first half of the year, January through June, at the book of Matthew, uh, one step at a time. And we are currently on Matthew chapter 12. If you want to join us there, that would be fantastic. And as Timothy said, we've had different segments that have uh, helped to bookshelve our time together. Uh, The first segment featured the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and it was Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, We called that segment um, uh, being changed or following Jesus from the inside out. Jesus says, I want you to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Um, Moses came with the law. He came up the mountain of Sinai with the law. But I come with a new law that's going to be on your heart. And uh, you're going to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And I don't want you to lose your breath on that. That's not something to judge you or to condemn you. That's something that's going to empower you. Because the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to write the law on your heart. And you're actually going to be a living, breathing, walking testament, a sacrament, a, a sacrifice um, to, to who I am. Uh, and that's going to make you more righteous than the Pharisees. And the second segment, um, which actually, if I get that slide up there, um, about kingdom uh, miracles or kingdom healings, he gets off of the mountain and he starts to um, walk out in power the kingdom that he has been talking about. So it's not just about talk and rhetoric and doctrine and theology. It is about power. It is about the spirit of God moving into darkness rather than running away from it. And so lepers are cleansed and, and, and sick people are healed and demons are cast out. Um, and we see the kingdom of God manifest. And, and then the story kind of takes this turn, which is where we're at right now, starting in Matthew chapter 11, where what you think would happen doesn't happen. There's an irony of disbelief that the greatest miracles ever performed, where they said, this has never happened before in all of Israel, the land that God loves. This, this kind of miracle has never happened before. And the teachings that Jesus talked about, they said, we've never heard teachings like this before. It sounds like we're talking directly to God, you know? But, but, but as, as the story goes on, uh, the, the, the chapter turns, you know, and, and chapter 11 begins, and you start to see not just kingdom teaching miracles, but we start to see kingdom rejection. And people say, this guy's a demon. You would think the guy with the greatest teaching and the greatest miracles of all time would be, would be seen as at least somebody to listen to. But somehow they surmise out of those events that this guy's not only not God, this guy is a Beelzebub. He's a demon. Um, and so this is where we find ourselves in this place and irony that... Um, that people can encounter Jesus and not know who he is, that they can see him but be blind to him, that he can talk to us and we wouldn't hear him. And we think that if we were back in those days with burning bushes everywhere and you know mountains moving and, and oceans splitting, uh, the seas and so forth, that we would be easy to believe in him. But the reality is with YouTube and, 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 and our phones and the ability to history and understanding and intellect, we're just as blind, if not more blind than ever. And that is the irony is that blindness isn't of optics. It's not in the eyes, it's in the heart. And this is what Jesus continues to preach. It's not, it's not that you're going to get proof from me and all of a sudden you're going to believe. Actually, there's all the proof. Romans says that it's the creation of the world that testifies to God. But yet our blindness, our hearts make idols of other things that are not God and make ourselves blind so that we can't hear even though he's speaking. And so uh, this is our, our journal that guides us for this time, which we're kind of coming to the end of it after we get through Matthew 13. But the journal says, where might pride be? Bitterness, fear. Where, where might the kind of issues of the heart, the belief systems of the heart, if Matthew 5 says that the pure in heart see God, then what would an impure pure heart do? What are the impurities? What are the parts of the soil of my heart that, that it says the love of money, the riches of the world, the persecution, the worries of this life? 
begin to choke out the very revelation of God. What's in my heart that makes me blind? And Jesus, could you show me, show me in that place as you're the teacher and I'm the student. I'm not the expert. I'm the child. I come towards you and I say, I don't know. Would you show me what I don't know? That I would see you. I don't see you. I come to him and I have this idea that I have some faith, but I also have some doubt. And I've got to recognize what I don't know so he can show me what I don't know and show me himself as my heart becomes good soil. And how can humility, surrender, thankfulness towards him and make my eyes open? God, it's your presence and, and it's your Holy Spirit that comes to convict men of sin and women of sin. I thank you your presence is poured out, not trickled out on this place. And that it's easier to believe than not to believe. But God, it would take a heart of surrender, just a simple yes, a posture change, an open-mindedness, God, that you would rearrange things and we would start to see the one we were made for. We ask that you would do that in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Every summer from the ages of 6 to 16, I would go to Hong Kong. Oh, it was so fun. I didn't know it was so cool, but it was so cool. And uh, used to, um, it was 106 degrees every single summer, and I thought I was having a sacrifice because I was missing T-ball and Little League and that kind of thing. But looking back on it, it was just the chance of a lifetime to go and visit this awesome, awesome city. So uh, up here, I think this is Temple Street, and uh, the sights and sounds are different than Woodruff Road. Uh, there's all sorts of interesting food categories like chicken feet. I was telling the guys at Men's Lunch the other day. Um, there's all sorts of uh, bootleg and fake Ralph Lauren DVDs and polo shirts and Jordans there that you can get your hands on. I mean, the world's your oyster. I was 15 years old and I have an MTR car and I could go anywhere in the island. You go to Disney World one minute and all the way to some place that looked like it was out of the 1850s the next and it's just this awesome metropolis. You know, they call it the, the, the Lion Island or something like that. This kind of like really strong economic center um, of China as they open it up for free market. And so I would go every single summer and the culture was so different. I remember I would pack my backpack full of Starburst and Game Boy video games and I would fly for 21 hours and uh, just have the time of my life out there and go hang out um, out in Hong Kong and just see the world, you know. And, and so there was, this, there was a culture shock that, that would happen when I would go over there as, as a young man and, and 10 and 11. My eyes would kind of open to it more and more and more as I would go and visit. There was a strong value in Hong Kong or in China altogether for authority. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen some of this before in, in Eastern cultures where it's like you're sitting down um, and if you go ahead and eat your dumpling before Uncle Cam Singh eats his dumpling, you might get a smack to the face. Like you don't eat before the oldest person eats. There's an understanding that I don't care if they're senile. I don't care if they're crazy. I don't care if they're mean. If they're older than you, you should show some respect. That's how it works out there in, in Hong Kong and in China. There, there's, there's a real um, emphasis and a value on, um, on, on accomplishment, on, on making sure that you extend the family family name, that you represent the family name well and go on to do good in college and get good grades. And so the kids, for the most part, you know, were left unto themselves a lot. They were kind of raised up by amas, which are like maids, and the parents kind of go out and do their working thing, and you're at home. And, and the real thing that you're supposed to be doing is just making sure you can mess up your bed. You don't have to take care of the dog. You don't have to, you know, have a certain faith walk necessarily. You just have to make sure that the grades are right, and then things are good. And so there's a culture shock, a culture difference when you would go to Hong Kong. And I would spend the winners in Fort Wayne, which were completely different. The emphasis was more on stories and laughter. The emphasis was more on uh, 4th of July barbecue, bratwurst, hamburgers, steaks, that kind of thing, less dumplings, less lobster, that kind of stuff. Um, and there was a casualness in the way that you would relate and a, and a focus on relationship and intimacy that was different. And I learned to value both cultures. I was a multicultural person raised in kind of multicultural household. And I learned to understand that different families have different values. 
So at the end of Matthew chapter 12, we come into this little tiny episode that stands apart from all the rest of the uh, episodes in the beginning of 11 and then the end of 13, which features a lot of the parables about the wheat and the tares and the mustard seeds and the soil and the seeds and so forth. But right in the middle of all of the Pharisees that are not believing Jesus and calling him the devil, and then all of this parable that explains about it, about hard soil and soft soil, there's this one little oasis episode of these people that are gathered in family. And it goes something like this. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers, that is Mary and James and some of the others that are not named, are gathered outside wanting to speak with Jesus. Now, we haven't heard much about Mary and the brothers since Christmas, and that's pretty consistent throughout the Gospels. In John, there's a few episodes where they lose Jesus at the temple, and they kind of, you know, uh, chastise him a little bit for running away and then there's situations where the kind of the brothers mock him when he goes up to the temple on Passover like hey Jesus you're the big son of God you should go up to you I mean you're religious go up to the church like there's this lack of honor within the family um, scholars kind of believe that because of this verse that Joseph has died by this point because Joseph would have been with Mary at the time but nonetheless this this group of his family have come to ask Jesus of his attention and Jesus responds in kind of a provoking way so verse 47 it says someone told him this, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So the air kind of goes out of the room, right? Because, uh, okay, Jesus already challenged and broke the fourth commandment uh, earlier as, as the Pharisees came to confront him about the Sabbath. Uh, he pushed the line and, and he, kind of, he kind of pushed the, the precedent there in terms of what, what we would interpret in terms of the fourth commandment of rest and Sabbath. And now he's kind of encroaching on the fifth commandment. As his mother and brothers have come, the authority idea within the Jewish tradition was pretty strong. And if your mother and brother were coming to the door, let alone any family, at least you could make some time for your mother. I mean, you could answer the phone for your mom. Hello, answer the phone, call her back, text her back. You would have some sort of, of reception you know, for, for your parents. And, and so he has this really strong statement. As a matter of fact, in one of the other um, translations, it says that as he makes this statement in verse 47, uh, that he says Jesus extends his arm out um, the way that like Moses extended his arm out in terms of authority, holding up his staff or splitting the sea, or as Jesus kind of, you know, told the man in the earlier chapter to heal, to be healed of his shriveled hand, to extend his hand. Extending a hand is kind of pointing at something with authority and saying, this is what this is. I declare to you that when you look at this thing, this is the word I want you to use as you talk about this thing. This is the dictionary I want you to uh, filter through as you consider this thing. This arm spreads, you know, spreads out to authority and declares something different about the situation. This is what he says in verse 47, 49 rather, pointing to his disciples there. Here are my mother, here is my mother, and here are my brothers. And then he says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven, those are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. So he points to his disciples, he extends his hand, he has a kairos moment with them, like a, like a here's this learning moment that you're going to let go of something you used to think and pick up something new, according to my kingdom teaching. And he's going, this here, the way that these disciples are gathered, these are my mother, mother, mothers, these are my brothers, this is my family, this is my kingdom family that are gathered here today. And so we see really the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, from the, the end of, of Matthew chapter 11. Actually, if we get it on the screen, when, when he talks about the revelation of the Father, it's a, it's a few slides down, so I'm sorry to rush it, but this is the prayer that Jesus says at the end of Matthew 11. 
in uh, verse 25. Jesus says in this open prayer, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these little things from the wise and learned, but you have revealed them to little children. So he's forecasting what's going to happen in 12, and he's helping us see that it's not an accident that a bunch of people aren't going to understand who he is because they're too wise. And he says, on contrary, in juxtaposition, there's going to be another group of people like children that are going to receive what the wise people don't see. So all through 12, verses 1 through 45, there's a bunch of wise people that are dumb in their wisdom. And then there's going to be these kingdom wise people, these children, that are going to come to me. In verse 26, he says, Father, this is what you're pleased to do, because I didn't come for the critics. I came for the children. And he says, all things have been committed to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father. And he's using very uh, Abba, uh, you know, very warm, relational, daddy language that the Pharisees didn't get. It was a new teaching. Like some of the thing with, with, with Moses, excuse me, with Matthew, is that Moses was the old law that he came to a mountain and read an old law that could only discipline the flesh. But Jesus came as the new Moses and brought a new kingdom and a new law that would be, that would be put on the heart of his children. And, and, and so he's saying there's, there's going to be this resistance. There's going to be these people that, that want to live in Moses' age and era, and they are not going to be ready for my era as the new king and the new priest. And so, so nobody gets the father thing because they don't know me yet. But this is what he says. The Son knows the Father, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him are going to see the Father. The people with Moses only see Abraham. They only get the patriarch system. They only get the law. But I'm going to bring a spirit uh, empowerment and endowment to the, to the earth so that conviction of sin will lead to a yielding of me. That they'll come to me as children, they'll be taught... And because the yoke that falls on my shoulders will fall on their shoulders, it's light, easy, and they're going to have a relationship with the Father that wrote the law. And so this is what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my teaching upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls in the midst of legalist interpretations, doctrines and dogmas added upon, added upon, added burying the spirit of the Holy Spirit beneath it and the altar between direct connection between God and man. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus is having his first little church meeting, isn't he? At the end of 12, he's not worried about people that don't believe him. He has a family gathered with him. He has brothers and sisters and what he said was true. He didn't preach things to condemn people. He preached things that people would receive it. And, and, and receiving the seed, receiving it in good soil, raises up a harvest, a crop, a fruit that multiplies 30 and 60, 90 fold. And what he has, he came for is what he has in that room. He didn't come to prove points or get an audience or have fans or be famous or prove himself right. He came for family. And he has gathered around him, not pupils, not disciples, family. Brothers, sisters, mothers. When he's on the cross, one of the last things he says in one of the accounts of the Gospels, he points to his disciple, he points to his mother, he says, Mother, this is your son. And son, this is your mother. These are family members. 
Not because of blood, but because of spirit, because of kingdom. There's a new family, a new thing that's, that's being created. So you remember in Genesis, when Adam uh, first gets created, God says, it's not good that this guy's alone. We're going to get this guy a family. He needs some help. We're going to get him a helper, which God has called helper several times. It's not a demeaning, submissive thing. It is a subjective thing or subject, sub, I can't remember the right word, but it's not pressing down on, on women in terms of, of, of um, importance or significance. It's this idea of helping, of coming alongside. And so it'll read here in Genesis that the rib was taken out of Adam here in Genesis 2, 23. The man said, this is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. So, so man without the curse looks at his wife and says, we're one. We came from one body and we will act as one body. There's no division or, or, or separation between us. We have one, one purpose together, one um, heart together, one mind together, one work and responsibility together, one household and family. We're one. Your, your bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, and she should be taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and becomes one flesh. But Adam eats the fruit. The serpent comes, it tempts Adam. Eve eats the fruit. Darkness falls on Adam and Eve where they had no shame. Now they have shame towards God and shame towards each other, and they hide. And God goes and finds them out. Not that he doesn't know where he is, but he goes and finds Adam to show Adam how far he's gone. Has a conversation with Adam, and the very first conversation beyond sin, Adam uh, sees sin attack his identity, but simultaneously attack his family and unity with his wife. So in verse 11, this is now Genesis 3, one chapter later, who told you you were naked, Adam? Didn't you, did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat of, that I commanded you not to eat of? And the man says, it was that woman you put with me. That curse is on my house sometimes. I don't know where that, it wasn't just in Genesis. It was that woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. There's no more us, there's them, isn't there, in the household? That person, not my household, my family, my bride, flesh to my flesh, interruption of intimacy, there's a disconnection. First task on the wonder list for the enemy was to take out the family was to take the curse and wedge it between the flesh and the bone of a way that the family was supposed to operate. And then chapters later, chapters later, we have the sons, right? Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, 8 and 9. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother, being jealous of the offering that Abel had and killed his brother Abel in the field, not one chapter later. Then the Lord says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he says, Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? Am I one with him? Am I supposed to have ownership and responsibility over my brother? The heart of God from the beginning, before and after sin, was always about uh, family. It was never about individuals getting personally saved by their personal Savior so they could have a personal paradise in heaven. He came to die for his bride, his church, not scattered but gathered, a one-hearted bride, one spirit, one father, one baptism over all, Gentiles, Jews, slaves, barbarians, women, men, old, young, gathered at the table of the bride and the spirit together. He didn't come for body parts. He came for a body. He came for a church. He came for a bride. He came for a community. There would be missing pieces and steps if individuals beamed up to heaven without the bride. He wouldn't look at a toe 
for, as a member of a body and say, I'm celebrating this toe so much as he would long for the foot attached to the ankle and the knee and so on and so on and so on. He came for a family. He established on, on, on Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision to provide for unity that the, 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 the central value piece was not dim sums and it wasn't barbecue chicken. It was the central unifying factor was faith. It was the covenant of faith that Abraham was counted righteous in Hebrews 11. And so it was by faith this family would forge its way in and out of Egypt and on through the, the testament of the Old Testament. And then even one of the last prophecies of Malachi shows uh, what Exodus 20 is talking about, right? Fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. Seventh commandment, which is defending of the marriage. Uh, don't covet your marriage. Don't covet the spouse of, 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 of somebody that's married. Let What God has joined together, don't divide. And in that division, Malachi, at the end of the last prophecies in the Old Testament, says this, is that when the Holy Spirit falls, he's not coming for people, he's coming for families. And the Holy Spirit will give uh, will show fruitfulness in its job and its task here because why? That the fathers will turn back to their sons and that their sons will turn back to their fathers. He didn't come for individual sons and daughters. He came for family. So Mary and the brothers are knocking at the door. His bloodline family, the family that he knew to honor by way of Moses' law. He would call his father Joseph, his father, and his mother Mary, uh, mother. And he would say to the people on the wedding of Cana, do whatever the lady says, because she has authority in, you know, with me, and I, I listen to her. I submit myself to her according to Exodus law. He's not abolishing the law. Jesus came to say that very clearly. He came to put us under grace so that we would become more righteous than the Pharisees under the law. He didn't come to abolish even a stroke of the pen. Anyone that doesn't live to the commandments of Moses and greater, he says, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what he's saying. He's not abolishing the law. He honors the parents. So the parents come and the brothers come and the sisters and they knock on the door. And Jesus isn't necessarily, we have to understand and interpret this passage. He's not, um, he's not completely separating himself from family to never speak with them again. He's not disassociating or dishonoring them. But he is deprioritizing them. There is now, because the kingdom of heaven at hand, repent and believe the good news, because of its presence, a spiritual family line that's being birthed out, transcending Gentile and Jew and slave and barbarian and Chinese and any other race. A spiritual family line that is being birthed, and it does take precedence. In the end, Abraham was a foster parent. John had to say to, to his disciples at one point, I'm cutting down the root of Abraham. Abraham was good for his day. Exit, you know, Moses was good for the law that, that disciplined the flesh. He served his purpose, but that time is gone. And there is a new season where people will speak not to their father Abraham or their father Cam Chao Wong, but they will gather around the family table of God. And they will know the father. They will gather around the will of the father. Jesus isn't, isn't de-emphasizing or dishonoring or saying he's having nothing to do with Mary. As we know, James goes on and writes one of the epistles. It's like he's not separating himself from bloodline family. He's just saying that there is a deeper line of family in the Holy Spirit than the blood of my family. And what's old is gone and what's new has come. And he makes these statements to us that your family deserves your honor. Your parents deserve your honor. Pick up the phone for your parents unless you're Jesus. Pick up the phone, email them back. That's a great discipline to have. 
But at the end of the day, those people are not really your father and your mother. Your father is in heaven, and God always honored the most important. Jesus always honored the most important part of the fifth commandment, which is honoring his uppercase uh, father, not his lowercase father. His father Joseph was dead, much like the law, and now he's gathered around the will of my father. This is what, this is what he says, pointing to my disciples. This is my mother. This is my brother. My family is the one that does the will of my father. You see that there, how, how it started in 11, and he said, uh, he says, I'm going to be your teacher, I'm going to be your rabbi. You're going to be the student, and the relationship is that if you come to me, I'm going to teach you a better way. I'm going to be better than these rabbis. But, but Revelation has a funny way of helping you see the same thing in different ways, and as they walk with him further, they're not just teachers and pupils. They're sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, and now they're not gathered around a teaching. They're gathering around the presence of God. They're gathering around the will of God. What would a church be like that didn't just gather around the sermon or around even just the scripture? But if the sermon would be written on our heart, if the scriptures rather would be written on our heart, that we would form a new community, a new covenant family that is way more than the Cosbys or the Simpsons. It's a gathered family around the will of God. The will of God. It's not gathered around the doctrine and the disciplines of God. It's gathered around the very will of God, the very presence of God, the new covenant community that God had always imagined way back from the Garden of the Fall. He had a plan for what he was going to instate through his son Jesus, not just to take on saints, but to take on families of people together. The body is one, the bride of Christ, made perfect and spotless. So this is our sermon in a sentence this morning that Jesus didn't come to find fans. When you go back to uh, the beginning of the series, the first thing that I wanted to, to preach on was the, the interaction between Peter when he walked on the water. Jesus walked first, and Peter had the right impulse, whereas the other 11 had the wrong impulse. Peter saw Jesus and didn't see it as a show, a celebrity, a, um, a, a sign and a wonder to buy tickets for and be audience to. He saw it as a model to be like his rabbi, not just to be a fan, but a follower. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 11, if you follow me, you're going to feel your shoulders lighter because my yoke is easy. I have the law that Moses could never give you and I'm going to do it in my presence. But you see, there's a revelation, there's a, there's a dispensational revelation that's coming out that things are getting closer to the time of crucifixion. The disciples are not staying still and stagnant. They're moving towards him and they're realizing, I'm not just not a fan, I'm not a follower. I am family with Jesus. And he'll tell them in John 15, I don't call you servants anymore in my heart. You might feel like a servant or slave, but you are my friend. And that person to your left and your right, that is a brother, that is a sister in Christ. More than any other time they use the word disciple in the New Testament, they use the word brother and sister in Christ. Do you treat people in the bride of Christ like a brother or a sister? You got crazy brothers and sisters, don't you? You hang with them. You, you go and visit them in prison. You go and talk to them when you're divided from them. You go and forgive them. You make connection the goal, not winning. You stay with them, don't you? Do you treat people in the Bride of Christ as though they're just the Arby's employee? Do you not need them? Do you not deserve to speak to them with affection of, of we have the same Father? That's, that's what he's saying here is that the Father, the, the, the Bride of Christ is a family. And the fruits that were earlier up in the chapter, in chapter 11, the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about last week, he's like, there's good trees and bad trees and I'm a good tree. And fruit isn't just patience and kindness. Fruit is people. One of the things that you're going to reap in your life, 
when you follow me long enough is you'll stop listening to a teacher and you'll start listening to a father. And if you follow me long enough, the scales on your eyes are going to fall off and you're not going to see the people in your church as annoyances or competition or, or, or people that are in your way or people that you're offended about. You're going to say, that's my brother. Because he's my father, that's my brother. Because he's my father, that's my mother in the Lord. Because he's my father, that is my sister. And I would dare not speak to my sister or think about my sister in the ways that I do. So this is what I feel like is happening. Where's my magnets? Kyra, I took the checks off the fridge and uh, took the magnets. I always have these really great... If I, if, we had a, if I had more money, I would buy these big you know, stage props and teach and things like that. But these are my little magnets. See if they work. Yep, they're magnets. This is one of my favorites, the little clip. It hangs on to stuff. All the papers and the Valentine's Day cards. He'll just hang on strong. Old Louie right there. You know, who, who takes physics? You all know about this, right? The one side is, is attracting, right? You turn the thing around, it repels. There's just, there's just a magnet here. You know what's cool about this? Like, if the magnets, um, if they were obtuse, like if the shapes were wrong, it wouldn't matter. Like if they didn't fit, if there wasn't like a cohesion there, if there wasn't adhesion there, you don't need any glue or, or tape. They just have a force inside of them. I can't really think of almost anything else that attracts itself to itself like this, like a magnet does. Like on anything else, if you fix something, you'd have to use a, a bolt or a screw or glue or whatever. Some of you guys are probably thinking of exceptions to the norm, but just hang with me. <laughs> but this magnet, there's just a force. It's like, it's, it's inevitable. Like it's inevitable when they were to get near each other, they would, they would draw near. So I wrestled with it all week, and I'm like, Lord, why are you talking about all these unbelievers, and then you got a family, and then you've got wheat and tares and mustard? And I think it's because it's like this is us. Like, he, he showed us a preview of coming attractions. Like, we don't even have people that believe yet, and now he's got a church. He doesn't have one believer, and now he's got a church. And there's a whole gap. Like, how did that happen? And what I see in that is that he's saying... The people in that room are different because they have a different soil. And it's not the problem with the seed. The seed's great. The seed is right. It's the seed of the time, and the seed falls on many soils, and some reject, and some get busy, and some are shallow, and some whatever, but some, they receive the seed, and then they grow up into this fruit. Not just, not just love and patience, but, but family. Family, fruit that remains. And, and these people, they're changed from the inside out. They have this force inside of them. That, that they look at the world differently and they look at people differently and they look at the church differently. They look at brothers and sisters differently and they are drawn towards each other. In John chapter 13, he says it this way, I'm going to go and where I'm going, you can't, you can't come with me, but I want you to love one another the way that I loved you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, he says in John 15, and I want you to choose one another the way I chose you. I don't want you to choose people that like you. I don't want to choose people you're comfortable with. I don't want to choose people that, that like you back and love you back. I want you to choose people the way that I chose you when you weren't choosing me back. What would happen to two people that their, their inner drive, their value set and value system was only motivated by Calvary love? What would happen if, if a person who at Publix and at school and at work and anywhere else they loved people not the way they were loved in return, but they loved people the way that Jesus loved them. That kind of person. What, what happens to that person, right? When they walk through the, through the world and they say, love doesn't start with my friends, love starts with my enemies, right? Because he says what? The pagans can, can love. 
Pagans love people that love people back. That's not what Christ loves. Calvary love starts with enemies. Calvary love starts with people that don't choose you back. Calvary love starts with people that ridicule you and persecute you and don't call you back and are angry with you and shame you and guilt you and all these things. That's when, that's when Calvary love starts. It doesn't start with alliances and business partners. It starts with, with rejection and loving still. That's what, that's, what, that's what would happen. And so what if one person that was practicing Calvary love that was driven from the inside out to love the way that Jesus loved them met somebody that... That was, that was symbiotically, that was, that was symmetrically loving people in that exact same way, what else would happen to them except become family? What else could come of two people that had the love of Christ in them other than family? This is inevitable. It's a downward-facing slope towards glory. It's the only possible outcome. Seeds in good soil will raise up fruit, and fruit will remain, and fruit will turn into families, not just friends and followers and, 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 and just people that are fans of Jesus, but people that are committed in love to one another. This is how you know that you love God, child, is that you love one another. If you don't love one another, you don't know God, or at least not well yet, because the family that gathers around the will of God should have no problem with love should have no problem with covenant unity, should have no problem. And this is the thing, is that God's not waiting on, this is what he says in John, in 1 Corinthians 13. Y'all can give your money away to the poor. It doesn't matter if it doesn't start in love. You can prophesy with tongues and angels. It doesn't matter if y'all aren't family. If y'all aren't, aren't drawn to each other, if you don't treat your brother like a brother and your sister like a sister, it means nothing to me. Because you can't export what you don't have. You don't have love in you. You can't tell other people what it is that they're missing. This is the way that the fruit was always supposed to happen. The maturity of the word of God in seed form is not just that a, that a person would follow him. It's that a person would follow him into family, into love, into New Testament, new covenant, new gospel, new Calvary love, a different kind of thing. And that's why he says, I, it's the last prayer that he prays. I pray that they're going to be one the way that Adam and Eve used to be. I pray that they're going to be flesh of flesh and bone of bone. I pray that they're not going to have division among them. There's no need among them. I'm praying that they're going to be one. And this is how the, the world is going to believe. Why? Because they're going to see the oneness in this church and realize it's the greatest apologetic that the, the church can present. It's the greatest sign and wonder we can give is that races and ages and demographics and barbarians and Gentiles and Jews and women and men can sit around the table in unity. Now we've got an advertisement that people would be interested in. This is what Jesus is saying. The New Testament church is meant to be not individuals getting along with each other, but covenant partners in oneness. He's come to bring Adams back to Eve's and Cain's back to Abel's. And of the 600 peace treaties that have been created in, in, world, in, in our time, there's only one prince of peace that can bring that kind of peace. Paul calls it the manifold wisdom of God. It's the only way that this kingdom is coming. It's the full fruition. It's not, he didn't come for parables. He didn't come just to say slick things. He came for his family. And that's what he prophesied in 11, and that's what he got in 12. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love, it doesn't envy. It doesn't, it doesn't boast. You see what a magnet does? It's like, yeah, there's going to be some, some awkwardness to, 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 to moving into that force field of energy there. There's some awkwardness there and some learning and growing, but at the end of the day, it's an it's inevitable step. Two people, two people unconditionally love each other will eventually find love in each other. Two people that decide ahead of time that I, don't, I know we have disconnection, I know we have disagreement, but I'm going to choose you in connection over winning the argument, and I'm going to choose in to you because you're my brother. What other option can you have? If you and me are both patient, 
And my job when I sit down to you is not to say what I want to say. It's to understand your heart. What other option do we have other than you feeling safe in my presence? If, I, if that's who I am, not a law that I follow, but I, am, I have a seed in me of obedience that's coming up in a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, what other option does the conversation take other than me knowing you as a brother or sister so that I can serve you better? If I have patience in me, if that's the real fruit that I have in my life. Who doesn't want to be around a kind person that chooses not to offer you know, criticism beyond the amount of contribution that they want. Who doesn't want to be around that person that wants to love you and speaks truth to you so that you can be raised up into your fullest capacity? Who doesn't want to be around somebody like that in the covenant church that isn't name-dropping and envious and insecure and talking about themselves, boasting all the time about what we've done and what we have, you see what happens here, and this is what Sharon said at the women's event. I thought it was so great, Sharon, last night, but the idea here is that good soil has death in it. All of these things, they're not Ben Franklin's you know, ethics to ascribe to. They're fruit that comes from deadness. I am dead to myself, and the seed roots itself in me, and I'm coming alive in Christ. I'm bearing a fruit that is not of this age. It only comes from the vine, from the family of God, from the will of the Father. You see, this deadness, it doesn't tolerate pride. And there's a swagger and boisterousness that is easy to spot, but there's also ways that we talk about ourselves that are more subtle than that in the pity parties, right? In the ways that we make everything come back to me and what I want. There's only one enemy to the family of God. There's only one really kind of soil, and it's pride. It's flesh. It's me first. And he's saying the word of God that's swallowed into the soil of the heart, the way you'll know about it is you'll have family. If you don't love one another, you don't know God yet. That's okay. God, open my eyes that I could see you more. I don't understand yet. What if I only saw honor in you? What if I only saw who you were without stumbling over who you're not? If I saw you the way that God sees you, even if you weren't seeing yourself that way, if I wasn't self-seeking, if I was slow to anger, if I work to de-escalate, if I work to get the walls down, if I work to understand and come towards you. If when I said I forgave you, and I said and I and I said it and I meant it and I never brought it up again. I never brought it up again in my marriage, right? My always statements, my never statements, those don't work here anymore because it's been tossed east to west, bottom of the sea. It doesn't exist under the Calvary love of Jesus. If we loved each other like magnets, wouldn't we end up together? It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. Oh, it speaks the truth to you though, right? And it speaks in a loving way and thankful for people that I can trust that you love me and you're speaking into me because you want better for me, not because you're annoyed with me. That you've built a bridge with me of a relationship that can heavy, he carry heavy things across it. Wouldn't we end up family together if that was the will of the Father in our life? It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always, it always perseveres. If, if I know something about you that's off and, 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 I, and I have gaps, I don't really know why that's, it's off. But because the love of Christ trusted me, because it entrusted me to do things I wasn't trustworthy to do, and because of that flowing through me, if I chose trust rather than suspicion, what would happen to our relationship? 
If instead of I have the decision to say, well, I'm suspicious about this person, I don't think they have good intent, and I know that they're motive, and I'm going to judge, jury, execution them. If I, if I fill that gap with trust and suspicion, I wonder what other good life-flowing things would flow through the soil of our church, of our relationships, of our family. What other destination could two magnets do except be together? I think that's what the scripture is saying to us this morning, that good soil takes good seed and yields good fruit, which yields great family. God didn't come for individuals. He came for a new covenant family. This is our intentional question of the day. I'm going to invite the band to come up and then we'll read the gospel moment. How is Jesus revealing the will of the Father? Not just Bible verses, but what God is saying to you and your family. Your lowercase father gave you an image, maybe a tainted one, maybe a broken one, but not a complete image of your capital uppercase father. He was a foster parent for you. He was there to show you some of it, but not all of it. And the good news is, is that Jesus didn't leave it at that. He gave us the perfect image, the revelation. It says in the scripture that like he opened our eyes to see what the Father is, not just hear about what he was, but know who he is. This is what Jesus came to do, not to show himself, but to show the Father. What are you learning about the revelation of Father? In your friend group is the value code of Mary and the brothers of law and contract, and I'll help you if you help me, or is it of covenant and love, and I choose you even when you don't choose me, is your friend group gathered around the will of the Father or around the will of the law of Adam, of Moses. In this church, do we gather around the will of the Father? Do we treat each other in circumference of the will of the Father? Do we gather at the Father's feet? The only place to find family is not coffee cakes, although those are great. And it's not around just getting together. It is getting together in the will of the Father, in prayer, in love, in 1 Corinthians agape love, in serving, in humility, in making way for others. Just friends gathered together on Tuesdays is not necessarily family unless the Father is there. It's friends. And God has offered a revelation of who He is that we wouldn't just be acquaintances, that we would be family, that we would be covenant family together, that the world might see and believe that God has not left His family alone. Let's stand and uh, take a, a gospel moment here. This is what the gospel means to us. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to bring us from spiritual death into spiritual life. And one of the ways that that is overtly today is spiritual life in family, in community, not just because I know you and where you live, but because I see you. I see your heart. I see who you are. I see who God is in your life and what he's doing in your life. And it says, Jesus, he loved us so much that he died for our sins. He wasn't waiting for us to love him, but he loved us first. And he changed the entire government of the way that we look at the world. He, he switched out the glasses, the way that we look at the world and each other. And now we can have a close relationship with God for eternity. I get to wake up now because I'm so loved and because I am loved. I'm not asking people, who can I get to love me? The question becomes, who do I get to love today? Who's on my list, God? Because I want to show somebody how much you love me. And this is the gospel that he's died for us and we can draw near to him anytime as a child. As you're six, if, you're, if you're six or if you're five or if you, if you have the intellect of, of, of a handicapped person, you're, you're, you're close to God because of his call, because of his simplicity of faith that he calls us to. And if you trust Jesus and his death is the only way to spiritual life, if you call on his name and say, you know what, Jesus, I've looked at all these other places to find all these other gods and all these other ways and all these other wills and all these other words, but none of it worked. I listened to this kind of music and looked at this kind of culture and I looked at this kind of religion and none of them worked. They never brought that peace. They never brought that rest for me, Jesus. And so I'm just going to call on you. That's how the gospel works is that we call on him, not just once, but always.
If that's you for the first time or the 99th time, I want to invite you to just receive the gospel this morning. Just say, Jesus, we just receive your gospel that it's easy and light. We receive your seed into our soil, God. We don't have to be smart or have it figured out. We don't have to be strong. We get to be weak. We get to come to you without answers. And God, you give us what we don't deserve. You show us what we don't know. And God, as we open up our eyes, God, that we see nothing but joy and fruit and love. God, you're a good father with a good gospel and we receive it not because we deserve it, but because of the price you paid. We love you and look to you now. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.